Good morning. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews and chapter 12. Continuing to reflect on the let us statements in the book of Hebrews. Reading verse 25 to the end, focusing on verse 28 and 29. Hebrews chapter 12, reading from verse 25 to the end, but focusing on verse 28 and 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can be, cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Be thankful and worship God acceptably. Be thankful and worship God acceptably. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For God is a consuming fire, is the rendering of the NIV. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. The rendering of the New Living Translation. And we have read the rendering of the ESV. We encounter in chapter 12 the last warning. As you read through Hebrews, you can divide the book of Hebrews by the phases of warnings. You can divide it by the expositions. You can divide it by the therefore practical applications. And here in verse 25, in the context of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, having contrasted with the temporal and the permanent, we receive, as it were, the last and very serious warning, and it has to do with not taking for granted and rejecting the warning that has come See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't do that. 
For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Don't reject the one that has spoken from heaven because there are consequences for doing that. And then we told the reason why we must not reject this warning because of what will happen. There will be a shaking of the elements. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. In that context, we read in verse 28, Therefore, because of this, let us be thankful. The author began chapter 12 by exhorting the saints to run the rest marked out for them with perseverance focusing on Christ, the author and perfecter of faith, is not left that thrust. All he's saying that this running can actually be defined this way. It's a running that must be marked by gratitude because that must be the natural response to God's goodness in giving you a kingdom, in receiving the kingdom of heaven. But it began by reminding us that we must run each one and corporately the rest marked out for us. Having exhorted them to run the rest, chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, he proceeded to encourage them to run the rest with perseverance, to endure persecution and hardship as discipline from God. As you read verse 4 to 11, he is basically saying, Look, part of the reason you must run and the motivation that must make you run is your view of this race, is your perspective of the difficulties you are going through. And here is how you must view them. View them as discipline from God. And then he argues in that context that, look, this actually demonstrates that you are legitimate children because if God is not disciplining you, well, only illegitimate, only artificial children are not disciplined because even our earthly fathers do discipline us. But then he acknowledges something also, that I'm not saying this will be nice. I'm not saying this will feel pleasant. Uh, discipline at the moment of its being exercised is not pleasant. But focus on this. Its design is for your good. So having exhorted them to run, the rest, he proceeded to encourage them, proceeds to encourage us to run the rest with perseverance, to endure persecution and hardship as discipline from God. Having opened up the subject of discipline as motivation to endure hardship, he challenges them to action. In verse 12 to 16, as you read verse 12 to 16, it's a series of activities or action items they must do. Indicated at the beginning that he has this as his pattern of opening up. He gives an exposition or opens up a doctrine and then applies it or calls it to application what he has indicated. So in verse 12, therefore, here is what you do. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. 
and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Fourteen action items, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, action item, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up. And that's how he continues. And then in verse 17 provides a reason for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. An example of how somebody who refused to act appropriately forfeited what the Lord had promised. In verse 18 to 24, he reverts to one of his major manner of exhortation or encouragement, the contrast. As you read the book of Hebrews, one of his major styles is to present the mosaic system, then compare it to what I would call the Christ system. So he says to us, well, Moses was a mediator, that's true. Well, but in comparison to Christ, Christ is a better one. Moses did give you the law, oh, but the gospel dispensation is glorious. Moses and the priests under him did enter the holy place. Oh, but Christ has entered the sanctuary in its own league. The priest did offer sacrifices, animals and everything. Oh, but Christ has offered himself, not several times, once, because that's all that needs to be done. And that's what he is doing basically in verse 18 to 24. He reverts to one of his major manner of exhortation or encouragement, the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. And then you come across, in case you're thinking, where is this contrast? It's right there in verse 22. That as you begin verse 18, for you have not come. Uh, this is in comparison to something. You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and he gives details of it. Then in verse 22, the contrast is introduced, but you have come. So there is this. Some people did go to this. Oh, but you are going to this. And having dealt with that whole package from verse 1, we're down to verse 27. In verse 28, we must respond. It's in the context simply this, that when you reflect on the work of salvation, the richness of what Christ has done for you, you must be completely something else not to respond with gratitude. You must completely have missed it. The author is saying, look, I have labored to bring out the richness of what you are receiving and surely when you appreciate this, must be. Now, just in case, as in many times is the situation, you are unlearning. You, you're difficult to catch the thrust of what I'm teaching you. Here is my exhortation, therefore. Let us be grateful for receiving 
a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But he calls us to this, having seriously warned, having seriously warned against responding to the better covenant with a better mediator wrongly. While verse 28 commends the right response, gratitude that results in acceptable worship. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, we come upon the latest command or exhortation formula again, this time as a call to rendering acceptable worship as the interconnected observations in Hebrews 12, 28, 29 highlight. As you read Hebrews 28 to 29, it's connected. There is an interdependence. Because of this, this is what it means, but this can only be acceptable if it's done this way. Well, if you don't do this this way, I am going to close with a warning, be warned, God is a consuming fire. What are the observations that are connected? Firstly, observe that the reception of an unshakable kingdom must, as a necessity, result in gratitude. The reception of an unshakable kingdom must result in gratitude. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Because this is what it is. Explore God's plan, God's design, the intricacies of this plan, the outworking of this plan, the wisdom of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the reduction in the sense of coming to our level, condensation of God. All that you may receive, but notice what you've received, it's an unshakable kingdom. Or notice what you've received. It's a kingdom. It's a dignified inheritance. It's a priesthood of high regard. Because of what this is, let us be thankful. What is the right attitude to all this? It's given us a rest. Given us grace given us encouragement to run this race, provided warnings, given us many examples of a people who ran, is lifted up Christ as the ultimate example, who suffered for you and for me, who disregarded the shame of the cross but did go to the cross, who was insulted. He, all this is working so that you receive an unshakable kingdom. What surely must be the right response? Gratitude. Notice first that the author in verse 28 states the great privilege of those who have embraced the gospel, receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. As you read the book of Hebrews, one of its major thrusts is who Christ is in this whole transaction of salvation, he is compared to Moses. He is by far better. 
compared to the Aaronic priesthood is by far better. His priesthood is like that of Melchizedek. This is eternal. But then he's shown to be the greatest by what he presents. By what he enables us to receive. It's not a temporary kingdom. It's not a shakeable kingdom that can be moved or changed. This is not a Roman kingdom. This is not a kingdom of the Persians. This is not a Babylonian kingdom which passed. This is the kingdom of heaven. And you're receiving it. And he's doing this to underline the great privileged position of Christians. And he's doing this so that when he then calls us to this, we would be saying, surely this must be the right response. So the author in verse 28 states the great privilege of those who have embraced the gospel, receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. The design of verses 18 to 29 is to demonstrate the distinction and supremacy of the kingdom of Christ. Let's read from verse 18. Just notice how he's doing this. You've not come to what may be touched. The old covenant people did go to a mountain that could be touched, but forbidden because they were not worthy, but it could be touched. A blessing, I mean, that could not, uh, you've not come to a mountain uh, that may not be touched. The previous one was forbidden. A blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I trembled with fear. That's the contrast. This is not why you are coming. You're not coming to a scary, fearful, fiery position. That if you dare touch it, you will die. But what have you come to? But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn. Skip something important, verse 22. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven unto God, the judge of all, unto the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because this is what you've come to, see that you do not reject this one. Well, this is the right response, therefore, therefore. Because of where you've come and who is there and what God has bestowed on you is how you respond with gratitude. The design of verses 18 to 29 is to demonstrate the distinction and supremacy of the kingdom of Christ. May I say to us, beloved, Nothing is better than Christianity. Nothing. 
So if you envy some Muslim charitable works, women go on Friday in numbers and they're giving ten kwachas and you envy, you wish you were a Muslim, nothing is better than Christianity. If you wished you were a Hindu with many gods, nothing is better than Christianity. If there is anything for which you must be grateful, if there is anyone for whom you must be grateful, it's Christianity and it is Christ. It is a contradiction of life as a Christian to live a life of ingratitude to God. It's a contradiction of what God has given you, even in your worst. Now, notice, I hope you know, that he's not writing to a people that are enjoying life. He's writing to a people that are going or undergoing persecution. A people who, by the Roman state, are not even free to exercise their religion. Majority of them in the diaspora, they are scattered and is encouraging them in the context of suffering. They are not having it easy as we are in Zambia. They were in a worse off situation. They had little compared to us to be grateful for. And it is to such, he writes, therefore, let us be grateful. None of us, please, just in case you're thinking, are you sure, read chapter 11. Chapter 11, the examples they are given, and they are given those examples to show them that others have walked this path. Others have died for this faith. Others have became a game. They were sown in two. It's to that group. Just in case you're thinking, you know, how can I be grateful? I am suffering, COVID, something, something. No, you are not. Compared to this, how dare we not be grateful for what he has done for us? Part of its distinction lay in its being unshakable. Immovable, that is indestructible. It is a permanent kingdom with an unchangeable course. No external position shall ever be able to shake or move this kingdom. The Lord Jesus stated that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. What can separate us from the love of God? What? His conclusion Nothing. No one. Why? It's indestructible. Christianity, beloved, is unstoppable. Once you are on this journey, no one can stop you. Even by killing you, all they are doing is simply bring you to the conclusion quickly. You'll arrive home. Because of what it is, because of what it is, the author tells us, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving. There is an implication there that this is a gift. This is not something you work for. This was offered to you, and you received this by faith. And as difficult as what I will say sounds, it's true. 
Not everybody has received it. Not everybody has it. Not everybody have had the opportunity to have the gift before them. Not everybody. If you are saved, it's because God gave it to you. He gave it to you. Please, let's throw this notion that tends to tell us, no, salvation, I worked very hard, you know, prayer and fasting until Jesus has no opportunity but to save me. No, you've not understood what salvation is. It's a gift. Sometimes it's infuriating. You speak to people, how do you know you are saved? You know, you know me, you know, I go to church, you know, I pray. What nonsense is that? You don't get saved because you worked for it. You get saved because he gave it to you. Also, just in case you think you're special. No, you received it. And the author is saying this. Be grateful that he gave you. Be grateful. He could have chosen not to. But he chose to give you. Even if you come from the west of villages. And by that I don't, remember, I don't mean my village, your village. <laughs> Even if you came from that one. The reason you are saved is because he gave you. And if he did, the author basically says this to us, therefore, therefore, let us be grateful. Here is my question to us, beloved. What is difficult? What is so hard with going to God and say, thank you? What's difficult? Why are we so stubborn that we are very ungrateful? We are men and women, boys and girls, whose speciality is complaining. A little thing that happens to you is, but why me, God? Why don't you say, why not you? Come to God like we deserve the best of this world. Like we deserve the best of God's gifts. Whether it's jobs or cars or marriages or clothes, whatever it is, it's almost like we are entitled to them. Now look at the text. Not only salvation, but every other blessing is a gift. Surely we must be grateful. Surely we must be grateful. Let's not uh, conduct ourselves like some children who are privileged. And when parents ask them to do a thing to show gratitude, their response is, I didn't apply to be born in this family, so don't trouble me. What an ungrateful child. We shouldn't be like those. We shouldn't be because this kingdom is unshakable. Life, as it is, is in transition. Everything about us Changes. The only constant that is leading us home is the Christian faith. If you are 25 this year, I prophesy. Next year you'll be 26. That's prophecy right there. It will come to pass unless the Lord calls you. You will change. I get you here from my children and say to them, I'm young. Uh, 
One of my sons likes to say to me, but you, dad, you are old, eh? And I'm thinking to him, are you looking properly? Just look again. And then they point at my head and say, by the way, there's no hair here. What's happening to you? Things change, but this kingdom remains the same. It's permanent. It's unchanged. What God has said it is, will be, has been, shall be. It will not be moved or shaken. At conversion, believers enter the spiritual state of the rule of Christ. Notice, secondly, that the author is by implication stating the inconceivable greatness of the privileges received by believing the gospel. The estimation, the value, the worth, the measure of Christianity is not necessarily our outward materials. It is our inward and spiritual blessings. Read Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. And you read there, we, we blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Every single one of them. And if we are, we should be grateful. They're thirdly under gratitude that the author by implication is underlining the futility or the uselessness and imprudence or lack of wisdom or focusing on any other kingdom. To focus on any and be consumed by any other kingdom other than the kingdom of Christ is absolute, absolute imprudence. It's being totally unwise. It's pursuing that which is absolutely at the end of the day useless. Beloved, whatever we'll acquire here on earth, whatever we will have, if we do not have Christ, it's all going to pass. Here's how the Bible puts it. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world? Now, just in case you don't know the world, it's the world in which America is. To, to have all America yours, it's the world in which China is. To get all the wealth is, it's the world in which India is. It's the world in which Pakistan. It's the world in which Zambia. We are fighting over God, this side. God, we have sold. That's the world. If all that was yours, but you did not have Christ, what shall it profit a man? And if we have Christ, the implication is this. We have all that matters. We have all the wealth in its ultimate splendor and glory. But the author is assuming that everyone he is written to have actually received this kingdom. That's what he's assuming. Listen to the language. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving an unshakable kingdom. If that is assumption, my question to you is simply this. Are you among those where this assumption is true? When he says, let us be grateful for receiving, are you among that group that can truly say, yes, I have? received this kingdom. You cannot afford to be wish-wash here. 
You cannot afford to be vague. You can't afford to be uncertain. I ask, beloved, are you sure you've received this kingdom that's unshakable? If you have, then the application is for you. Be grateful. Be grateful. There is no kingdom like this among all that has ever been. Everything about it is incorruptible as well as undefiled. Its territory, its subjects, its laws, its throne, its scepter, its sovereign, all are everlasting. Nothing can shake it. No war, no enemy can disturb its peace. No storm, no earthquake can assail it. No, inter no internal weakness or decay can dismember or dissolve it. Notice, fourthly, under this being grateful, that the great privilege of being recipients of an unshakable kingdom must constrain or prompt an overwhelming sense of gratitude. Being made recipients of the inestimable blessings of the unshakable kingdom surely must result in gratitude. Receiving an unshakable kingdom is the equivalent of what is stated in verse 22 to 24. And here is what we read in verse 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, when innumerable angels in feast or gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's the equivalent of receiving this unshakable kingdom. Christians who conduct themselves below their dignity and honor betray the explicit and implicit truths of Hebrews 12, verse 28. Simply stating they probably have not received this kingdom. If they have, that they are ungrateful. They have refused to listen to the one that has stated it to them. Secondly, by way of observation, the first observation is really be grateful if you are saved. Secondly, that gratitude engendered or brought about by the reception of an unshakable kingdom is a means of offering worship that is acceptable or pleasing to God. Gratitude or thankfulness engendered or prompted by the reception of an unshakable kingdom is a means of offering worship that is acceptable or pleasing to God. Notice under this observation that the duty that is impressed on the believers on consideration of the great privilege, which is acceptable, pleasing to God, is worship. You say you are saved? Verse 28 is saying, when you give thanks, you're simply doing what your duty is, which is a means of worshiping God acceptably. What is implied in this exhortation is that it's possible to practice worship where the worshiper and the worshiper are not acceptable or pleasing to God. Please look at the text. That is verse 28. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, or in this way, or by this means, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Worship can be unacceptable. Worship can be unpleasing. Beloved, the fact that we sing, the fact that we read the scripture, the fact that we come to the Lord's Day and worship does not necessarily mean it has been accepted. And that text is asking us to examine whether our worship actually does fall in the category that is called acceptable worship. Or does it fall off in the category of unacceptable worship? It's possible, beloved, to be sincerely convinced that you're doing acceptable worship when you are absolutely wrong. As a local church, I invite you again to go to our vision and our mission statement. That our vision and our persuasion is that we'll be a local church that worships God acceptably. That's, we, we're not simply imitating what others are doing. Let me put it properly. I hope we have not simply been imitating. That's what my UCZ does. Uh, that's what the Seventh Day do. Uh, that's what Seventh Day Baptists do. Uh, that's what Pentecostal Holiness does. Uh, that's not our business, primarily. Our business is to investigate the scriptures and say we will do this because it falls in what is acceptable to God. Let me say this. Uh, you obviously are sensing that I'm not finishing. The fact that you feel nice does not mean your worship is necessarily acceptable. Now, sometimes, you know, we might, you know, somebody may read the scriptures and we, we're just thinking that that's, 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 with baritone reading, with tenor, you know, just enjoy his reading. The fact that you enjoyed it doesn't necessarily mean it's acceptable. And one area in which this is even most uh, likely to happen is singing. We can sing and even cry. Doesn't necessarily mean it's acceptable. Our homework. We pick up next Lord's Day. What constitutes acceptable worship? Well, let me in summary simply say this. If the worshiper is in right standing with God. That's first and foremost requirement for any worship to be acceptable. If you are not a Christian, if you are not saved, whatever you do is not pleasing. His interest is not in your activities. His interest is in you. Only when your standing is right will he then begin to say, okay, let's look at your activities. But it's not just any activity. It's what he has prescribed. And as we explore uh, this observation next Lord's Day, you will notice that worship, beloved, is a serious business. 
Worship is not some trivial, you know, wishy-washy, any way you choose. And what makes it serious and grave is the warning in this passage, verse 29. Worship him acceptably because God is a consuming fire. In other words, you do this activity wrong, you will experience his wrath. I beg us as the local church, let's be grateful. Trusting we've received this kingdom. But that as we continue to be grateful, let's worship him acceptably. Probably sense that this is one areas of passion, the matter of worship in our time. And if I slow down here, I trust that you'll bear with me because it's here where things matter. May I please beg us that we worship the Lord acceptably. Amen.